This is apocalyptic literature. This is a very different kind of literature. And so I won't go through all his dumb reasons, and nor will I go through the dumber thoughts of modern scholarship. People want to attack Revelation in our day because they do not like the implications that this book has on their life. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we begin a new study in the book of Revelation. This is a challenging book, but one that Pastor Brogy is purposing to clearly explain over the next several months. In this introductory message, we'll look at the author, the outline of the book, and we'll examine four different ways the book has been interpreted. Take God's word, would you? Turn to the book of Revelation chapter one. If you're joining us for the first time, this is the start of a brand new series. Typically at Community Bible Church, we take entire books of the Bible and we go through them chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And what a timely uh, study for the book of Revelation. If we're not living in the time frame described in this book, we are certainly living on the threshold of that time frame. So many of the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. And if you are sensitive to God's prophetic word, you can see that. Many of you, think about it, many of you who are alive have witnessed in your lifetime the rebirth of the nation of Israel, a nation that was destroyed in 70 AD, a nation that ceased to exist for nearly 2,000 years, but a nation that God said would have a rebirth before the Christ comes a second time. Think about the rise of Russia and their uh, status now as a world power and their domination in the Middle East and their allegiance with Syria, two countries that the Bible speaks of prophetically at the end of time. Think about the awakening of China, a massive army as the Bible speaks of the kings of the East that will come and attack Israel. Think about the convergence of a number of nations in Europe, for God predicted that at the end of time, that there will be a United States of Europe that the Antichrist will come from. And then think about the moral climate of our day. Think about the resurgence of militant Islam, the hatred and the violence that comes with it. The Bible speaks of the Arab nations of the world coming against Israel in a great war. Think about the sodomy of our day. I told the people in the last service, I didn't even... I had to ask my mother, I think I was either 12 or 13, what a homosexual was. I, I had no idea. It was a word that people didn't even speak when I was a child. It was virtually a swear word. But now it's an everyday word. Think about the moral bankruptcy of the day and the hour in which we live. These are all parts of a jigsaw puzzle that God is putting together as he sets the stage for the return of his son from heaven. So in the coming months, I think you'll see that as we get the big picture of the book of Revelation. I want to begin this morning by reading the first three verses. So if you have a Bible, follow along as I read. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed 
is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, as you can see on your note-taking outline, I have three objectives for us this morning. It was Aristotle who said, like archers, we shall stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. So I hope to delineate the lines of the target this morning. Three critical objectives. First, I want us to think about the date that this book was written, why that's important, and the human author, and why it's important for us to know that. Second, we're going to try to get an overview, an outline of the book, to see the big picture of Revelation. Because if you can see how a book is outlined in the big picture of a book, the details will take on so much more meaning. And then third, we're going to look at, by way of introduction, four approaches as to how people have interpreted the book of Revelation in the history of the world. A lot of Christians are frustrated. They think, well, it can't be understood. And many times because of some approaches that have been taken, only one approach is correct, as we will see. And then I want us to examine the first three verses. So you know where we're going. If you fall asleep or daydream, at least when you wake up, you'll know where we are, all right? Now let's get started with a few preliminary thoughts here. Whenever you read a book of the Bible, you want to ask, who wrote the book? You want to find out what you can about the author and the date because that's very, very significant. The author, of course, as this slide reminds us, is the Apostle John. He identifies himself three times in the opening chapter and then again in the last chapter. And the date is not a mystery. The church fathers, those were the leaders, the early church fathers, then there's the late church fathers, but the early church fathers those men who gave leadership to the church after the apostles died left us a lot of writing. And their writing is unanimous that the apostle John wrote this book. John, of course, led to Christ a man by the name of Polycarp, who becomes a leader in one of the churches that we're going to study in the second and third chapters. And he, in turn, leads to Christ a man by the name of Arrhenius. Arrhenius said this, John wrote a revelation in the 14th year of the Roman emperor Domitian. Now we know from history that Domitian reigned from 81 to 96 AD. So the traditional date that all the church fathers agreed upon was 95 AD. That's a very accurate, firm date. In fact, it's not until the third century that a man by the name of Dionysus of Alexander denied Johannine authorship, said John didn't write it. It was written after he died, and he argued that it wasn't in John's writing style. Well, if you read John's gospel, he wrote five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. If you read those books, you discover that it is consistent in terms of his vocabulary, but no, is it the same style? Of course not. This is apocalyptic literature. This is a very different kind of literature. And so I won't go through all his dumb reasons, and nor will I go through the dumber thoughts of modern scholarship. People want to attack Revelation in our day because they do not like the implications that this book has on their life. Now, when you think about John, it's important to think about how he is described in the Bible. In his own gospel, he's called the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. For instance, in John 13, 23, we read, there was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. 
when Jesus is hanging on the cross in John 19, we read, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Actually, five times over in the gospel of John, he's described as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Twice in the last chapter, he calls himself that, and then he lets the cat out of the bag, not to be braggadocious, but because the Spirit of God leads him to write, this is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. Now, if you were with us when we studied the Gospel of John, we saw by process of elimination there was only one man named John, namely the Apostle John, who could have written the Gospel of John. And again, he wrote John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in the Revelation, five books. Now, why is he called the beloved disciple and the disciple whom Jesus loved? Did that mean that Jesus loved John more than Peter or one of the other 12? Of course not. But as you study the Scripture carefully, you discover that John and Jesus were first cousins. And the evidence for that comes in two parts, which in turn comes in two parts. Four critical passages. Let me give them to you. You can go home, look them up this week, or you can go back and listen to the introductory message to John where I walk you through that. John 19.25, Mark 15.40, Matthew 27.56, in John or uh, in Matthew 4:21. Now, if you read those ca- passages carefully in their context, you will discover that the Lord Jesus' mother Mary was the aunt of the apostle John and his brother James, which made them first cousins, technically first half cousins, of course, because Jesus did not have a human father. And so John being a first cousin to Jesus, no doubt grew up with Jesus. Now remember, John the Apostle lived longer than any of the other 12. He's the last apostle to die. It's very possible, possible that Jesus and he were playmates as they grew up. Did Jesus play as a little boy? Of course he did. He grew up just like any other child, had friends. And, and it's very possible that John was his best friend growing up. Or maybe Jesus was a little older physically than John, and he was like a little nephew. In either case, he developed a special kinship for him. And the reason I even raise that is because when John gives us this revelation and records it for us, this half-cousin who had this close relationship with Jesus during his earthly life falls at his feet like a dead man because he understands that Jesus is Lord. Now, beyond the date and the human author, let's think about the outline for just a second. Let's climb a contextual tree and see if we can get the big picture of the book of Revelation. Now, normally, I would tell you to outline a book, you need to read it over five or six times from beginning to end, and it's only usually on the fifth or sixth reading you begin to see how all the parts fit together. And I would encourage you to read the book of Revelation this week if you haven't done it. You can do it in about 65 minutes in one sitting. But with that said, with this particular book, you don't need to read and reread it to discover the outline because God gives us the outline in the book of Revelation itself. It's kind of like Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. There Jesus said right before his ascension, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapters 1 through 7. 
You shall be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. That's Acts 8 through 12. And then he reminds them in this prophecy, and it's all fulfilled. You will be witnesses even to the remotest part of the earth. That's Acts 8, 13 to 28. Well, in like fashion, we read in Revelation 1:19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, according to verse 19, and as you read the book this week, you will see there are three sections, and they follow perfectly according to verse 19 of chapter 1. Chapter 1 describes the past. Chapters 2 and 3 describe the present. Chapters 4 through 22 describes the future. I have no doubt that you could further subdivide the book of Revelation, but that's the divinely given outline. And I think God gives us this outline because it distracts you from any artificial or man-made interpretation of this book. It will help you. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's the past. The things which are, that's the present. The things which will take place in the future. So here is a book chart. You might want to fill it in. After the introduction that's found in the first eight verses, it will take us two weeks to get through that. We'll just do three verses today. Um, in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1, you have a picture of the things which you have seen. And he describes the Lord Jesus in that exalted, resurrected body. The things past are those things which the Apostle John had seen and recorded for us in verses 9 to 19. And then verse 20, which is a transition verse into the next chapter. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are. And he describes seven literal actual churches that were present in the first century when he writes the book of Revelation. Then beginning in chapter 4, the end of verse 19 says, after these things... That's the last three words of 119. The first three words of chapter 4, verse 1 is, after these things, metatata. And so from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22, he describes the future. Or to say it differently, chapter 1 is about the Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are about the church. Chapters 4 through 22 about the consummation. He'll write about things future. We will see, beginning in chapter 4, there's no more mention of the church because the church has been raptured. The church has taken off the earth and the worst time in human history begins to unfold. So just kind of keep that outline in your mind. You see Christ in his glory in the opening chapter. You see Christ in his church in chapters 2 and 3. And then finally, Christ in his judgment. And as you read and reread this, you're going to see, I think, two principal reasons why God chose to give us an outline for the book of Revelation. First, to remind us that the primary purpose of the coming tribulation period is to bring Israel to faith in Jesus as Lord. When he came to his own, his own did not receive him. For the most part, as a nation, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But God is not done with Israel. Just as he used them the first time to bring Jesus into the world, he is going to use Israel, the Bible says, a second time to bring him back. And it's during that seven-year period, what the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble, what Jesus calls the great tribulation, when Jews across the planet are going to realize that Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, is the Messiah. 
In fact, Hosea chapter 5, in describing that coming period, said this. The prophet wrote, speaking of Messiah, I will go away and return to my place. Messiah was here, but he's gone back to heaven. Until, until they, the people of Israel, acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And so one of the chief functions of what we studied in Daniel, the 70th week, the final seven years, what the New Testament calls the Great Tribulation, is not only to give Gentiles who have never heard the gospel before a final chance to repent, most of whom will not, but it will bring Israel to their knees and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And secondly, I think God gives us an outline because it's the most logical, clear, and consistent way in which to interpret this book. It just keeps you out of a lot of trouble, all right? Now, beyond the author and the outline, let's talk about four approaches in the history of Christianity. And this is important, so listen. It may seem theological to you, but you need to listen because this is going to help you to see why there are so many wacky and interesting interpretations when it comes. You can see the, there are various approaches just as you read different modern authors. For instance, there's a series that Tim LaHaye, who recently went to heaven, he wrote the Left Behind series. And of course, he takes a futuristic view of the book of Revelation. He sees that the events that are written are yet to take place. There's another popular man. He's called, I think he calls himself the Bible man or something. It's kind of a talk, call and talk show like the Bible line. His name is Hank Hanegraaff. He wrote a book called The Apocalypse Code. And he said all of the events in the book of Revelation with the exception of the literal, physical, visible return of Jesus from heaven, all took place before 70 AD, primarily in and around 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. So he criticizes theologians like LaHaye or pastors like myself for taking too literal approach to interpreting the book of Revelation. So let me explain the four different approaches in the history of the church that people have taken. The first is what we are calling the idealist view. Sometimes you will hear it titled the spiritualist view. And the idealist view basically says that the book of Revelation is written to help us to understand the struggle between good and evil. They um, say the book of Revelation is not about the past, it's not about the future, it's about no time at all. It's just a, a series of spiritual principles in which we can live life. So this allegorical way of approaching the scriptures, and some did it only with the book of Revelation and not with the rest of the Bible, but some approached all the scriptures like this. There was a fellow by the name of Origen in the second century who allegorically interpreted the book of Revelation. And then St. Augustine in the fourth century really made it a prominent view. And so, for instance, the tribulation period that is written of in the book of Revelation, they said, well, that's the internal conflict from within between, you know, sin and the pain and the consequences that it brings, not an actual literal event. Um, some allegorical people, especially liberal Protestant theologians, say there's not a literal second coming from heaven that Jesus just comes in our hearts and he rises up in our hearts and towards the end he'll rise up in more people's hearts. This is why it's important when you join a church to define terms because people mean all kinds of things. They can read the same historic creed and mean totally different from what it originally was intended to mean. 
So they refer to the Bible as inspired like Shakespeare, or it's inspired in spots, and you have to be inspired to spot the spots. That's why you've got churches debating over certain moral issues. Or uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and we're all sons and daughters of God, but he's not God the Son. That's how they reason. Or Jesus will not actually come from heaven to judge the living and the dead. He just rises up in our hearts. It's a lot of mishmash. And so the Antichrist is not a real person. He just pictures a satanically inspired political system that fights the church. The problem with this view, the problem with the allegorical interpretation of scriptures, number one, you make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. Let me tell you what it means. And you get on some drug maybe and come up with some psychedelic interpretation. But number one, why don't I believe that? Because it denies, first of all, the model that God left within Scripture on how to interpret Scripture. For instance, when we're studying the book of Daniel, the ninth chapter, it opened with Daniel reading a prophecy written by Jeremiah that the people of Israel would be carried to Babylon for 70 years. And he's towards right the end of that 70 years. He, he believed that that was a literal, actual prophecy. When you read the apostles in the New Testament interfacing with the Old Testament, when you read the Lord Jesus intertwining his teachings with the Old Testament, he applies it literally. He literally interprets the Bible. He doesn't take an allegorical approach to the Scripture. So the no-time view is a lot of nonsense. But there are some people today, especially in liberal Protestantism, that still teach this. Second, there's what we call the preterist view. Praetor is the Latin word for past. And you know there are a lot of terms like the one written on the front of the pulpit, like the five in the stained glass behind us, that come from Latin. Why? Because for a thousand years, Latin was the principal translation that the church read. Praetor means past. And so the preterist view takes the book of Revelation or even the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, and they said it was all fulfilled in the past. Now, there are two kinds of preterists. There are what you call a full preterist and a partial preterist. A full preterist says everything in Revelation has been fulfilled, even the second coming that we're actually living right now in the new eternal state. Well, if we're living in heaven, God must have put me in the ghetto because it just, just doesn't seem right to me. But most of the preterists are what we call partial preterists. And they say everything has been fulfilled in the past with the exception of Jesus' physical return from heaven. Now, this view was started by a Roman Catholic Jesuit by the name of Luis de Alica. And he came up with this view in response to Luther and Calvin, who held to a third view that we'll look at in a moment, who said that the Pope in their day was the Antichrist. And so, not wanting the Pope to be the Antichrist, since he obeyed the Pope, he made everything in Revelation as having been fulfilled way back yonder. And again, this goes against all sound scholarship. Number one, it denies the date of Revelation that no one debated for centuries, that it was written in the 90s, not before 70 AD. In addition, when you read the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the preterist interpretation indicates that um, these, uh, it just doesn't fit. These are not first-generation churches in chapters 2 and 3. These are second-generation churches. Think about it. 
One of the seven churches that he's going to mention is the church at Ephesus. Now, Paul writes the book of Ephesians to this church. And when you read Ephesians, you discover it's one of the healthiest churches in all of the New Testament. But when you come to the Revelation, you discover that it's not all that healthy. That this was a people who had abandoned, left their first love. And Jesus warns them of a heresy that didn't even exist in Paul's day. And so if the book of Revelation was all fulfilled 70 AD or before, Paul, which wrote Ephesians closer to that date, it just doesn't match. Or take this church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. As far as we know, that church didn't even exist when Paul walked upon the earth. Or take the church of Laodicea. Three times Paul commends the church at Laodicea in the book of Colossians. He wrote Colossians around 62 AD. But Jesus rebukes the church at Laodicea. Why? Because it is a second generation church. And so the preterist view does not by any stretch fit the rest of the New Testament in the historical setting. Another problem with this view is that the events that are described in the Olivet Discourse and that are described in the book of Revelation have no match whatsoever. For instance, when Jesus described his second coming from heaven, he said in Matthew chapter 24, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Hank Hanegraaff, a preterist, said, Well, this is a description, not of the second coming of Christ, but the Roman army advancing against Jerusalem in 70 A.D., well, the problem with that is, number one, the Roman army didn't advance east to west. They advanced west to east, and their attack was not sudden like lightning from heaven, a flash. It was actually a three-year siege from 67 to 70 A.D. Not to mention Titus never fulfilled what Jesus calls in Matthew 24, which we will see explained in the book of Revelation, the abomination of desolation. Titus didn't go into the temple and present himself as a god. In fact, the temple was destroyed in the siege. It was burned to the ground and every rock was pried apart to get the gold just as Jesus prophesied. And so you have to allegorize and spiritualize a lot. But preterists basically see the book of Revelation as a history book. And this position... Uh, which comes out of Roman Catholicism, is held by Hank Hanegraaff, R.C. Sproul, and a bunch of other people I won't mention. It does the Bible injustice. Remember, in describing the time frame that we're going to study in the Revelation, Jesus said this, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. The preterist view denies that. It overlooks that there is coming a time that had God himself not intervened, no one on earth would have survived. As we've seen today, some theologians take an idealist view of Revelation, others take a preterist view. And when we continue tomorrow, we'll look at two other views, and Pastor Brogy will show which of those views makes the most sense. To listen again to today's introduction to the book of Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program REV01. 
Search the Scriptures is dedicated to leading people to Christ as well as growing existing Christians in their walk with the Lord. If you can help support this ministry, please call 877-787-7478 and inquire about becoming a foundation partner or about making a one-time gift. Thank you. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our introduction to Revelation and search the Scriptures.